Welcome to the Talking the Talk podcast, where we'll be exploring items of automotive technology and the design journey into mass production. I'm Kevin Reed, founder of the Ireland Made platform, where we celebrate stories of Irish transport, past and present, and this is our podcast. Very happy to welcome my co-host, automotive engineering consultant, Mike Keane. Mike develops sustainable transport solutions for industry and has extensive automotive career. Having previously worked for Williams Formula One in their advanced engineering division, has led projects for such as Ford, Nissan, Land Rover and Aston Martin. And what is most impressive for me, he worked on the baddies car for the James Bond movie Spectre, the Jaguar CX-75. In our exploration of the origins of automotive technology, in each episode we're going to discuss cars that range from the 1921 German Rumpler right up to what Tesla and Lucid are doing today. So today we're going to begin with aerodynamics. It's good to be here, Mike. What are aerodynamics? They're the smooth surfaces of a car that allow it to go faster. Am I right? Yeah, in effect, that's that's one of the main things of it, Kevin. Um, so aerodynamics is the study of how air flows over a moving body. So in our case, a moving vehicle. Hmm. And if you allow that... Um, when a vehicle travels from one point to another, it has to pass through the air and therefore has to move that air out of the way, which causes a resistance to the car. Right. Um, so the job then of the aerodynamicist is to engineer the surfaces of the car so that at sort of an entry level, it just helps the car going forward. And at its very best, it actually aids the performance of the car. Hmm. And then there are a number of factors that the engineer is playing with. So you have the wind speed, you have air density, you have the design of the car, and then you have the speed of the car. Now, if you allow that, as you said, the speed of the car is one of the things um, that we're, we're looking at. So you can think about fuel economy, things like that. But let's talk about speed. So the engineer is trying to, trying to achieve speed. So therefore, of all those factors, the, the surface of the car is the only thing that the engineer can, can manipulate. All right, yeah, I've never thought of it in those terms before that it is a manipulative area that the engineer the engineer can make things happen by using different shapes and foils great exactly so, okay great so so what, what are we going to look at here so today we're going to look at um an area of aerodynamics called drag so there are a number of different areas that the engineer is trying to manipulate drag is probably the the area that's most easily understood and in fact it was the area that the, the car engineers first turned their attention to um, so if you think the, the, the easiest way to visualize drag is to think about a boat traveling through the water. So mm-hmm. as a boat travels through the water, it leaves a wake behind it. How large that wake is or how turbulent that wake is, um, is a function of the design of the hull and also the speed of the boat as it goes forward. Right. So just fleshing that out a bit, is drag that much of a hindrance? Why don't you just lash a V12 engine in it and away you go, a good, big, powerful engine? Yes, yeah, it's a good point. So it's always, I mean, it's always a relative thing anyway, right? So no matter what point you, you start with, so how big or how small the engine is, you know, you're, you're, it's always a relative difference if you can gain some aero gain back again. Mm. But a really good example is the Shelby Daytona and the Shelby Cobra. So the Shelby Daytona is effectively a Shelby Cobra with a radically different bodywork. So designed specifically for aerodynamics, specifically for reduction of drag. The Cobra had a 4.7 litre engine, big V8 engine in it. Um, And when it was redesigned into the Daytona, effectively everything is, you know, more or less the same. The chassis is the same, powertrain is the same, but it brought the top speed of the car from 
260 kilometers an hour to over 300 kilometers an hour. Wow. So why is speed so significant to drag then? Yeah, speed's very significant. Um, so we talked about a few minutes ago, we talked about like sort of the different factors, the air density and uh, speed of the vehicle. So if we look at the equation for how we calculate drag, you can actually see all of these elements in the equation. So the equation is, if I, if I call it out to you, so yeah. it's rho v squared cda. Sounds a little bit obscure, but it's actually not too bad. You can break down those elements. So it's so half rho v squared cda. Just, rho, just to stop you there, Mike. So rho is, hang on, is RHO, right? Yep, that's absolutely right. Oh. Yeah. So it's basically, it's the Greek letter R. So um, engineers and physicists love Greek, right? So they're, they're always they're always in Greek letters. The rest of us don't speak Greek. So. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, so rho um, represents the density of the fluid. So in this case, the air density. V represents the velocity, the speed. And then the last element, CDA, is made up of two parts. CD is a, called a coefficient of drag. Like, yeah. come back to that. Yeah. And A is the frontal area. So the frontal area is, as you look at the front of the car, that shape of the car is being moved through the air. So if you think of it in terms of if a light was shone on the front of the car, what's the silhouette that would be on a wall behind it? So all of that shadow, all of that area has to, has to move through the, through the air. So... We multiply all of these factors together, but the V element, the velocity element is squared. It's multiplied by itself. So it has a, it has a doubling up effect. It has a more significant effect on the result. And also because it's squared, um, the, the effect rises exponentially. So for every extra kilometer of, uh, of an hour of speed you try to achieve, you get a significantly larger drag. And that's because of that squared element. Um, we're, you know, we're, as we record this, Kevin, we're a number of weeks into the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. Hmm. Um, and as a result of that, fuel prices have risen very dramatically. So a number of weeks ago, Eamon Ryan, who's the Minister for the Environment, Climate and Communications in Ireland, mm -hmm. made a statement that one of the ways that people could combat rising fuel prices is if they just reduce their speed. And, and he made a statement saying that uh, we know at certain speed we use more fuel. So if you reduce your speed, you can reduce your fuel consumption. That's basics. The, the basic physics that he's talking about there is that drag equation. So what he's actually talking about, and obviously put into you know layman terms, but what he's talking about there is the effect of that v squared element in that equation, that right. the increase of, of velocity massively affects the drag. Okay. So just to break it down further, can you explain then how those are coefficient drag in the equation to calculate drag that's, that's yeah right that's yeah i know yeah it sounds, it sounds a bit confusing so mm. the coefficient of drag is um it's a non-dimensions figure so um if i said to you that a typical coefficient of drag is 0.3 i can say to you kevin it's 0.3 meters or 0.3 newtons it's a it's a, a non-dimensionless number so it's uh, sorry a dimensionless number i should say so yeah. its purpose is to be a comparative figure so it looks at the relative design efficiency of two different cars it looks at their um the, how efficient the two aerodynamic designs were and it means that we can compare two completely different cars so uh, you can compare a, a mini and a ferrari you can compare a, a van and a, and a and a four by four so you can compare the design efficiency of those 
the size of the car is not actually um, a factor because that's considered in that frontal area element that we talked about already. Right. Okay. So that's the science. Let's get back to the cars. What were the influences for the airy, the early people working on aerodynamics? Yeah. As you can imagine, airplanes, um, aerospace was the was yeah. the the area least influence. So um, after World War One, there was a significant influx of aerodynamic, uh, sorry, um, aerospace engineers and aviation engineers into the automotive industry. So throughout World War One, there had been big advances in um, in the understanding of um, uh, of aero surfaces on vehicles, and then that started to be applied to cars. Interestingly, actually. In the sort of 1920s, there was also some influence that came from the locomotive industry. So late 20s, early 30s, there were a lot of streamliner trains. Yeah. Um, the, the Mallard is the example in the UK, the famous um, the, the, the Atlantic series um, A4. Um, and those trains had top speeds of over 200 kilometers an hour, which was significantly faster than the cars at the time. So actually, at that point in time, they were sort of leading um, the way in terms of actually how how streamlined design was taking place. And you see images of those trains that are completely sheathed in the bodywork. That's right, yeah. Streamlined beyond belief. Yeah, that's right. And now we're going to Germany, I believe, for your first example. That's absolutely right. So the German engineers will appear over and over again, particularly in the early days, actually. So uh, the very first place we go is we look at the um, a car called the Rumpler Truppenwagen. Rumpler Truppenwagen, yeah, and I apologize to our German friends for my pronunciation. So Edward Rumpler was a German aircraft engineer, and um, he decided to set up a car company, decided to create his own car using the techniques that he had learned in the um, aerospace industry. And his car is called the Truppenwagen. Now, the direct translation for that is teardrop car. Right. So at that point in time, it was well understood that the teardrop shape was the most aerodynamically efficient shape. So sort of a, a rounded front leading back to a, quite a, a thin taper at the rear, yeah. And if you think of, think of an airplane wing, a cross section of an airplane wing, you know, the front, the leading edge of the wing is quite rounded, the yeah. tail, the airfoils at, at the rear are, 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 are a tapered to a, a thin point. Mm -hmm. So he took, took that principle, and he designed the whole car around those ideas. So if you look at the side view, you have this aerofoil shape. Mm -hmm. If you look down on top in plan view, you also have this aerofoil shape. Um, so the car almost has a, a fuselage like you've seen an airplane underneath it. Mm. Um, interestingly, it was one of the first cars then, or I think the first car that had curved windows, oh. and sort of curved glass. Curved, so a curved windscreen or curved down the sides? Both, actually. Both, yeah, yeah. both, yeah. So until that point, <clears throat> the cars just had flat plane, uh, panes of glass. Um, so to, to achieve this teardrop shape, we, um, we developed curved glass. Um, and wind tunnel tests showed that it had a, uh, a coefficient of drag of 0.2. Now, that was on a 20% wind tunnel model. Wind tunnel model results don't translate directly to the full-scale car very easily. There's, there's lots of losses in the in the detail of the car as it, as it expands up. And then things like um, the effect of the road moving beneath the car, the effect of the wheels turning, that's not taken into account. But nonetheless, comparing it to other cars at its time, like 0.2 is very significant. And, you know, if it were achieved today in a one tunnel, it would still be, um, it still be remarkably, remarkably good in a one tunnel today. Very good. So even back in, from 1921 to here we are to 2022, a very good example. Absolutely. Okay. 
So as we said <clears throat> at the outset, this podcast is about how that technology moved into mass production. So what vehicle takes us into mass production? Yeah. So the very first car that we talk about that, that had uh, mass produced, mass, that was mass produced, that uh, was designed for aerodynamics is the Tatra 77. Tatra were a very innovative company, um, a Czechoslovakian company or Czech company, mm -hmm. um, still in existence, actually building trucks. But at, in the 1930s, they were um, very advanced in, um, in what they were doing. So again, another German engineer, this one called Paul Yare, um, again from aviation. He had been the chief engineer with the Zeppelin Airship Company. Oh. He joined Tatra as a design consultant. And he designed the bodywork that had this teardrop principle again. So sort of a very rounded front and back to a, a tapered rear. But he put a lot of emphasis on um, reducing the, the bonnet line or the hood line. So he wanted to get the sort of the entry of the air onto the vehicle to be as easy as possible, as smooth as possible. In order to, to get that bonnet line down, it actually promoted the engine to the rear axle. So it became a rear engine car. And the movement, moving the engine to the rear of the car had a number of sort of um, aero gains, aero benefits. So one was that the front of the car, the very front layer, not the front layer, but the, the front hood can be dropped down lower. But also because the engine was at the back, there was no exhaust system or cooling system running mm -hmm. underneath the car, which meant they could have quite a flat floor. And air passing under the floor is a, is a big um, contributor to drag as well. So he was, able to, he was able to get that gain from it. And then the last thing is because it had this teardrop effect, he was able to create a negative pressure area behind the car. So a low pressure area that actually draws air out of the car. And that was able to aid the engine. Now the engine was an air-cooled engine. So it was able to aid wow. the cooling of the engine. Yeah. And we see this over and over again. We see this example where rear-cooled engines, so rear rear engine cars are air cooled because of this link where the um, the negative pressure aids the cooling of the of the of the car so we're talking cars like porsche 911 volkswagen beetle yep chevrolet um, corvair chevrolet corvair um does it have any effect on the modern twingo that is an engine in the back does it uh it, twingo. yeah it does so the twingo is a water cooled yeah. engine um so it will have an effect in that the the negative pressure is drawing the air out. But in this case here, what uh, we're specifically able to talk to is it sort of it promoted air-cooled engines, so engines that didn't have a water cooling. I have you. Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you. So we're I think we're moving up into the 1930s now in terms of design. Right. So, so the next, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, then, yeah, the next thing then was, um, well, the next major change is interesting. So it was discovered in the 1930s. But it wasn't. It didn't really come into effect until part of the 1950s, and that, that was um, again a German aircraft engineer called Edward, uh, sorry, Vonnebel Kam. So he did some experimentation on the teardrop shape in wind tunnels in the 1930s. So the teardrop shape, we know it's quite effective. The engineers knew it was quite effective, um, but one of the big disadvantages of that teardrop shape is in order to have the this large taper at the rear of the of the, the, vehicle, uh, the vehicle, it required a lot of mass and a lot of structure back of the vehicle to, to kind of keep this tail going. So um, his experiments, he worked out that actually 
if the teardrop shape was truncated, so in other words, you, you cut the teardrop about 50% of the way along uh, oh. of its length, the, effectively the air followed the same trajectory that it would have if this bodywork structure was in place. So it was already being funneled in that direction. So it didn't matter if the car was cut off as much as you say by 50%. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the air kept following that that um, same air path. Yeah. So we got nearly all of the same drag production that we would have got with the teardrop and shape, but all of that mass, all of that structure didn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. So that was quite a, was a, a significant piece of learning, a significant piece uh, um, gain in terms of how the structure of the vehicle was linked to the aerodynamic design. But funny enough, it wasn't really picked up. There was a few tentative attempts to use it. So the Nash, the Nash Air Flight is one car in the, in the US in the 1940s, sort of a conservative version of it. Um, and it was really the 1950s, the sports racers um, of the late 50s, the likes of the Ferrari 250 GTO, the Porsche 904, the Aston Martin DB212. So mm-hmm. cars designed for sports racing. So they were all coupe shapes and they, they all had this very sharp cutaway at the rear. So the bodywork suddenly had a vertical plane at the rear. So would that be a little bit like what's on the back of this Ferrari F40? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Oh. So if, exactly, there's a, there's a vertical plane, right? So it's just, it's just cut off at the back. Okay. Um, the car that I think most um, properly used the technique that Cam had developed was that Shelby Daytona actually we spoke about a moment ago. So mm. if you look at the side profile of the of the Daytona, it has quite it does still have quite an elongated tail. And then about 50% of the way, it's just this vertical cutoff on the on yeah. the plane. Um, and Peter Brock designed that. So um Peter, the designer for Shelby American, um, and he I think he discovered some technical papers in the Ford archive on, on the work Gamut can do. Oh very good. And now you you've worked with Peter Brock, haven't you? That's right. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to work alongside Peter on a, on a number of programs. So fascinating guy. Um, he was General Motors' uh, youngest designer. Um, he was still a teenager when he designed the uh, concept for what would become the, Chev- the Chevrolet Corvair C2, um, the Stingray. And then from there, he went to the joint Shelby American where he designed Daytona. After that, he ran his own team at BRE, Brock Racing Enterprises, was a, a works uh, Datsun. Um, racing team, designed hang gliders, and he's still active today designing uh, AeroVault, which is a, a an aerodynamically designed uh, race transport trailer. Sorry, hang on a minute. There's a company that designs, give me that again. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're transport, tr- transport trailers, so vehicle transport trailers, but they're aerodynamically designed. <laughs> Who knew there was such a market? Who knew there was such a market? <laughs> So the Shelby Daytona was actually designed for motorsport. So does motor for, does motorsport have much of an in, uh, influence on aerodynamics? I'm thinking yeah. wings and things, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you would obviously think of all of those, the, the wings and the spoilers that you can see. Um, you know, when we're looking for speed, which is which is a big element of what aerodynamics is about, uh, the uh, motorsport is, is significantly influential. Um, one particular example um, is if you look at NASCAR in the 1960s. So in the 1960s, the Chrysler Group were running two different cars. They were running the Plymouth uh, Roadrunner and the Dodge Charger. Mm. Now, they were both big engine cars, big powerful engine cars, but very bluff body. They were 
blunt tools, let's say. Yeah. And the Chrysler Group wanted to improve the aerodynamics of them for Daytona, for the, the high-speed ovals in the US. So they set about um, creating what's called a homologation special. Now, this is a technique that's been used multiple times by car manufacturers over the years, whereby um, the, the standard vehicle um, is converted into a special version that's a high-performance version. The manufacturer then sells those as a small series limited production. Um, the fact that they are now a production vehicle means that the manufacturer can then use that um, architecture or that design of car to comply with the motorsport rules, which require the car to be based on a production car. Gotcha. So nice. Chrysler then took the Dodge and the, the Plymouth and they, they, they designed really extreme bodywork on them. So a nose cone that was that was tapered in front, you know, almost comically high rear wings at the back. It, it looked like it was, it was it was like literally on a platform at the back. It's a huge thing. Yeah, that's right. It looks like a big yeah. grab handle. Right? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, and then things like they they also um, put effort into um, changing the um, profile of the likes of the door pillars. Right. So mm. a lot of detail went in there. And then and then the the Daytona Charger, um, the Dodge Charger Daytona, then was the first car to um circulate daytona at over 200 miles an hour wow okay that's something else now just to double check on that there was the chrysler group had was the plymouth superbird and the dodge charger daytona yeah that's right so the, the plymouth yeah. roadrunner then as, as a special they then called it the superbird ah. so the roadrunner was a bird called the superbird the dodge charger then they sold it as the dodge charger daytona Okay. Now, when we were doing our research for this podcast, you were telling me about the VW Sirocco being important in aerodynamics, and I immediately thought of the shape of the VW Sirocco. Not a car I'd associate with aerodynamics, as it's, but it's quite sharp, sharp-lined. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, but actually, I mentioned there a moment ago that, that um, the Chrysler Group had spent time looking at things like the door pillars. So that's actually a nice segue into the, into the Sirocco. Sirocco was launched in '74 very sharp lines, very typical of Jajaro, the designer at the time. In the late 60s, Volkswagen put a huge amount of effort into looking at the aerodynamic effect of the details that were on cars. So up until that point, aerodynamics is mainly concerned with sort of the, the macro. It's concerned with the, the overall shape of the car. Volkswagen started, looking, Volkswagen started to look at all of the, the small details, the wing mirrors, the wipers, door handles, roof gutters, oh. even the gap, the, the gap, the panel gaps. So and, the, the, like the gap on, on the bonnet between the wings and the bonnet, they're literally, yeah. wow, okay. The gap exactly between each, and each one of the panels, that's right. And what they discovered is the accumulation of drag of all of these components was almost as much as the drag that was being created by the, by the whole um, a car itself. Well, shape. Mm. So they they then set about turning that into a set of design principles for the car, whereby all of these small details were really concentrated on, and they called it detail optimization. Um, and as a result, then what went before then started became known as shape optimization. So the large scale stuff is the shape optimization, the real small stuff is the detail optimization. Um, the Soraka then was launched, it was their first car to be launched with this principle of detail optimization in 74. Um, and it had a coefficient of drag of uh, 0.28. And that's a figure that even today would be, would be more than acceptable. 
Wow, very good. So did that affect the styling of the car much if the emphasis was so much on getting the drag down? Yeah, so, I mean, in this in this conversation, we're talking about aerodynamics, and we're talking about the exterior of the car. Um, there's obviously a link between what the aerodynamicist is trying to do and what the stylist is trying to do. Quite often, those two teams were sort of in, in conflict in principle. I don't mean, you know, day to day. I just mean in principle, they're in conflict. Mm-hmm. Quite often, the designer is looking for um, features on the car um, to accentuate the style. The aerodynamicist is looking to take away um, drag components. But actually, what detail optimization did is it, it brought these two teams together more than they had ever been, really, um, because the details that the aerodynamicist is trying to remove or eliminate, the likes of the door pillars and the roof cutters, that's all of the functional stuff that the stylists really don't want to have on the car in the first place. Right. So suddenly they're working very much hand, hand in glove um, to take all of these components off um, and, and get these much more streamlined designs. Right. So now that they're working together, where did this, this newfound collaboration take the designs? Yeah. So I think if you look at the Ford Sierra, 19, 1984, it was probably the, at yeah. that point, the, the pinnacle of how those two teams then came together. So, um, up until that point, you know, the predecessor to the Sierra was the Cortina, very typical three box design car. And the Sierra had what was at the time called a, a jelly mold design. So it wasn't, you know, it, it, it didn't go down well with the buying public actually, because it was so radical. Um, but it was very much designed on aerodynamic principles, including detail optimization. Um, the other thing actually with the Sierra is it also had a, a closed grill. So or sort of the upper portion of the grill was closed. It was a, a fascia panel above the bonnet and the grill is under the bumper the grill opening for the radiators under the bumper um, and that's a principle that's used in most cars today where it actually the majority of the air cooling um, for the cooling system goes through a grill opening that's below the, the below the bumper line and, and would that obviously i'm not obviously but would that be good for fuel efficiency does that help absolutely yeah so most of this conversation we've talked about speed, but actually speed and fuel efficiency are, um, when it comes to aerodynamics, they're, they're, they, they work um, together. So gains in speed are also gains in fuel efficiency because what you're doing is you're asking less of the car. So you're yeah, asking... Pushing the engine. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Very good. So that must be now very relevant in the world of electric vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. So we see that coming back. And I think the first car that we... Um, that really started to, I think, pull these principles together in terms of electrics was the uh, the Hyundai Hyundai Insight. Sorry, um, it was a hybrid; it wasn't electric, right? Um, but it was the start of where the electric uh, vehicles were going. And that car had a cam back, didn't it? It did absolutely. Oh, it had a cam back. Yeah. So if you, what's interesting is if you look at side view, you have that cam back. So you have a teardrop shape. You have the cam back. But it also had it in plan view as well, the cam back in plan view. So, so looking down on the roof, the car tapered in at the rear and had a, had a vertical panel. And in order to achieve this, the rear track of the car, so how far apart the rear wheels are, that rear track is narrower than the front than the front wheels. And that allowed them to get this tapered effect in. Um, next time I see one, I'm going to have to look at it in that way because I've never looked at one in that way before. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I think it's one of those sort of modern classics that, you know, people kind of don't notice, actually. 
Yeah. So th- that means that taking this further than electric cars must need less cooling than combustion or do need less cooling than combustion engine cars. So that would in turn be very good for aerodynamics. Yeah. So they, they it's funny with um, in a later talk, actually, we talk about cooling. Right. So but uh, in electric cars do need less energy, less heat energy rejected. So there's, a, there's less of a total requirement for cooling, although having said that, there are often more cooling systems or more complex cooling systems on them. But um, what that means then is that the electric vehicles, people would often recognize that electric vehicles don't don't have a a big grill opening on the front of them. Um, The cooling is happening in that lower portion underneath the the bumper. But there's a synergy, there's a real strong synergy between that, the aerodynamic need um, to reduce uh, drag, to reduce the um, resistance of the vehicle, which is a real strong factor in, in electric vehicles um, in order for them to achieve their range. So there's a real synergy between that aerodynamic design to reduce the drag and the cooling of the vehicle and the styling of the vehicle. And it's funny because I always think that's very reminiscent of the air-cooled um, vehicles that we talked about in sort of 50 or 60 years ago. So where that the powertrain position, the powertrain type, the cooling type, the aerodynamics and the styling are all actually working working hand in hand. Excellent. So that was very informative, Mike. Um, very fascinating. And I think taken from our conversation, the one that gets me the most is the cam effect. So you can have a beautiful car, but with a completely cut off back is actually very efficient in terms of aerodynamics. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So thanks for taking us through that today, Mike. Um, That's the end of our first podcast. Thanks uh, for being here with me today and taking us through that in technical detail. Uh, Next episode, we're going to have styling and we look forward to seeing all of you then. Thank you for joining us today on the Talking the Talk podcast. My thanks to Mike Keane for the interesting conversation. You can check out Mike's offering on www.mikekeane.ie. That's K-E-A-N-E. And check out www.irelandmay.ie to see our back catalogue of stories on Irish transport, past and present. We look forward to welcoming you to our next episode, where we'll once again be exploring the origins of automotive technology. Please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about it. Bye for now.